Welcome to the Givology Impact Series podcast, in which we share the experiences and inspirations of social entrepreneurs and change makers around the world. I'm Vandana, and we, and we are delighted to have Rob Mather from Against Malaria Foundation with us today. Against Malaria Foundation is a top-ranked charity by Givel and other organizations and strongly emphasizes efficiency, transparency, and demonstrating impact. Rob is the founder and CEO of the Against Malaria Foundation. He started World Swim Against Malaria by persuading 20 people to give him 5,000 swimmers each. Rob's business background is in strategy consulting, event management, and publishing. He studied at Cambridge University, chemical engineering, and has an MBA from Harvard. Thanks, for, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us, Rob. No problem. Nice to talk to you. So just to start off, can you share with us the story of Against Malaria's founding and mission? Sure. Well, why don't I start with our mission first? Um, as you've alluded to, we fund at AMF, we fund and distribute long-lasting insecticidal nets, insecticide-treated nets, um, known as LLINs. And they protect people in malarious areas when they sleep at night from the bites of malaria-carrying mosquitoes. That would otherwise cause severe illness or, unfortunately, worse. Um, so that's really our mission. Um, it is to do that efficiently um, and accountably, and I'll come on to that. Um, but in terms of our founding, our story, if you like, I mean, you've alluded to it to a degree, but I can uh, put flesh on the bones. Uh, mm -hmm. Our brief story is that um, I'm not very good with a remote control of a television. So many years ago, instead of turning off the television, I switched across to a one-hour documentary that focused on the story of a two-year-old child who was very badly burned in a house fire. In fact, she suffered 90% burns. Um, the only piece of her skin on her body was, that was not burned was the bit beneath her wet nappy or diaper because it was wet. And as you would imagine, that's a pretty moving story. And I persuaded two friends of mine to swim what in the UK is an iconic distance, which is the English Channel, which is 22 miles. But because I'm not brave enough or fit enough to do the real thing, I asked them if they would do that distance with me in a swimming pool. And they said yes. And what was three people swimming, to cut a very long story short, became 10,000 people swimming in 75 countries around the world. And we have a little bit of that story on our website. Um, and an individual from Australia called me up and said, what are we doing next year? And we hadn't even done our swim for Terry, as it was called. Terry was the little girl that we were swimming for. Um, but to get him off the phone, if I'm honest, I said, well, why don't we get a million people to swim? And I certainly didn't think I meant it. But my little brain ticked over and I thought, I wonder if we could actually get a million people to swim. And so apart from identifying malaria as the causal area that I would want to do something for, um, there was no grassroots movement, if I can phrase it that way, when I scratched beneath the surface when it came to malaria. And it didn't take me long to um, focus on malaria, given that some of the numbers you stumble across, seven jumbo jets or 747s, full of children under five at that stage, so going back 10 or 12 years, died from malaria every day. That number is now 4747, so we're making progress, but more of that later. Um, and that it's malaria is the biggest killer of pregnant women, or one of the biggest killers of pregnant women in the world. Um, and that the most effective means of preventing malaria, prevention is better than treatment, is a $5 bed net. It was $5 then, it's now $2, more of that later. And that meant I wanted to see if I could get a million people to swim. I, I focused on that million people that I mentioned in the conversation. And I have a 20-minute rule in life um, for which you're going to have to grant me a little bit of poetic license. But I believe you can do just about anything in 20 minutes. 
And so my 20-minute approach to how do I get a million people to swim was to say, why don't I try and call 20 people, spend a minute on the phone, ask them if they'll give me 5,000 people to swim. And if I could do that, that would be 100,000 people, would certainly be the biggest participatory swim in the world ever. And that would be a credible platform to launch it and see if I can get a million people to swim. And again, long story that I won't bore you with, but we managed to do just that. I had some fantastic telephone calls, some incredibly humbling telephone calls of people who said, yep, we'll help. Um, and we managed to achieve a quarter of a million people swimming back in 2005. And when we had done that, a number of individuals and organizations um, said to me, look, you can't stop now. You're the biggest malaria advocacy group in the world, um, which was quite surprising to me and in fact if not shocking and I said to people are you telling me that 20 phone calls in essence out of the back room of my house in London in the UK have created the world's largest advocacy group for the world's single largest killer of children and the response to that question was yes so pretty shocking um, and 12 years on uh, we've kept going um, we're known as the Against Malaria Foundation we were known as World Swim Against Malaria um, in the early days We've raised um, just north of $154 million, and that's allowed us to have funded and be funding 68 million nets that will protect north of 120 million people when they, uh, when they sleep at night. So um, my approach was to roll my sleeves up and try and do something, um, to have conversations with a lot of organizations that were a lot more polite um, a lot politer than I'm about to express it, but I said to a lot of people, I'd like you to help me, but I'm not going to pay you because you don't need $5 more than a couple of children in Africa need a bed net. And I'm delighted to say a huge number of people um, have assisted us over the years. In fact, we don't pay for anything in terms of central cost by, by the salaries of the four full-time staff that I pay a salary to. So I have four costs globally in terms of central costs, and that's it. No accounting, no banking, no legal, no audit, no nothing, because so many terrific organizations and people help, help us. And that means as a, a, a small team of five full-time staff, um, we can be quite efficient. In the last two years, we've raised close to $50 million, and that means that we've been able to buy, in each of those years, um, something like 25 million nets and protect 50 million people. So um, we... All of what we do focuses on how do we protect people when they sleep at night, um, people who are not as fortunate as many of us, uh, many people who uh, will be listening uh, to what we're talking about today, um, including but not limited, if you like, to the fact that they are extremely poor financially um, and they're living in malarious areas where a mosquito bite will not be the cause of an irritating bump but could be a death sentence. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of what we've done over the last 12 years and how we've gone about it. Yeah, that's a really incredible story. So can you tell us um, a bit about your organization's accomplishments? Okay, so um, why don't I talk about sort of what, what we do and how we do it and our achievements in those areas. So in terms of what we do, um, <clears throat> and I would say what we, um, the emphasis on we, what we've all achieved together, it's not just the five of us and, and the many pro bono um, supporters and helpers, but all the donors and other supporters, all of us together um, have funded, uh, as I mentioned, 68 million nets, protecting 120 odd million people. And if we were to then um, add some further color and numbers around that, um, they're estimates, but they're probably pretty good estimates that those nets once deployed, we haven't deployed all of them, um, so some are still sort of in progress, but 
Um, that contributes probably something like 80 to 100,000 deaths being averted and 80 to 100 million cases of malaria being avoided. Um, so it is a contribution to making significant progress um, against what is a humanitarian issue. Um, hopefully everybody would agree that the sorts of uh, death and illness numbers we're talking about make this a humanitarian issue. But it's also an economic issue because if you suffer from malaria, then you can't, you're very sick. Um, uh, and assuming you're not going to die, but you're going to be sick for a, a week or two, um, and you can't farm, you can't teach, you can't drive. As an individual, you can't function. And therefore, you can't contribute to the, the economy as measured by uh, the gross domestic product, the GDP, um, or the wealth of the country. And therefore, this is an economic issue. So if we want to help many countries in Africa, this is predominantly an African problem, malaria. It exists elsewhere, but it's predominantly in Africa that we find the, the gravest circumstances. Um, we should all try and help um, Africa out of the situation that we all find it in. Um, and a number of um, calculations have been done that suggest that for every million dollars we spend efficiently fighting malaria in Africa, we improve the GDP, the wealth of the continent by $12 million. So in a sense, I would say to people, if, if you're not persuaded by the humanitarian argument for um, dealing with malaria is a good thing, then perhaps the economic, the investment argument um, might be quite persuasive. In terms of, um, so I suppose numbers, if you like, are one of our achievements um, in protecting people when they sleep at night. But it's very important to us how we go about things. So we hold accountability and transparency um, uh, dear and they're very important to us. And so I suppose I would say that um, we're now influencing national malaria control programs that part of the Ministry of Health in these countries that, that coordinates malaria control activities. We're influencing the way they go about their work and their universal coverage campaign. So um, a universal coverage campaign, as you would imagine, is covering every sleeping space so that you protect everybody in a malarious area when they sleep at night. And a couple of examples of that, uh, let's see, I suppose when we, when, before we distribute nets, we um, ensure that we understand exactly how many nets a household needs. Um, some will need two nets, some will need three, some will need four. So what we do is we go and collect household information that allows us to conduct the distribution when it takes place efficiently and get the right number of nets to each household. What we don't do is say, we'll go out into the field and collect data and it'll all be terrific because that is that sort of attitude, if you like, uh, if you like, the sort of optimistic hopeful is likely to lead to some issues. So we think carefully about each stage of our um, operational program. And when it comes to data collection, one of the ways we've influenced national malaria control programs is frequently now we have something called 105% data collection occurring. Very simply, what that is, is um, if I use an example of having um, 100 data collectors in a room that are about to go out and collect data from all of the households in an area, we actually have 105 data collectors in a room and we say to everybody um, assembled, you 105, thank you for what you're about to do in going and collecting this important information from households so we know how many nets are needed where. These five people are going to go to 5% of the households that the first 100 of you will go and visit. They'll do that several days after your work, 
with no knowledge of the information that you've collected. And we will compare the 5% of households that overlap and compare that data. In essence, what we're doing is through a small um, additional measure that doesn't cost very money, uh, very much money, so it's very cost effective, we are saying to the important data collectors, make sure you're accurate. Because if you're not, we'll find out. In other words, we're focusing on having really good data to underpin what we're about to do in terms of a, um, uh, a net distribution. And then the second thing I would pick out in terms of how we're influencing um, accountability in these programs is that we're taking all of that data that might be collected on paper, because that might be highly practical across a very poor country without certain elements of infrastructure and technological infrastructure. Um, we collect that data on paper, but then we put it in electronic form. It gets literally typed into a database. And what that does is it takes all of that information that might sit on 50 pieces of paper in a health clinic somewhere and get summarized and passed up the chain in terms of one final set of numbers for which it's very difficult to know if those numbers are accurate. We've now got all of this household level information, very granular, in a database so that partners can have visibility as to what are we looking at here? How many households are there and how many nets they need? And we can clean the data and we can make sure it's error free and so on. But fundamentally, it drives accountability because then it's very difficult for nets to go missing, to put it bluntly. So it means distributions more accountable, nets get to where they're intended. In a sense, we optimize the impact that we can have by, by maximizing the extent to which we can bring malaria down. So I suppose our two, two accomplishments I'd point to are the numbers of how many nets we've distributed and people we protect and the impact of those numbers. And in addition, how we're going about driving accountability within the countries that we're, in which we're working. Yeah, that's really impressive, especially the data collection. Um, so what are some of the recent projects you're working on? <coughs> well, all of our all of our projects are um, funding and distributing nets, multiple millions of nets um, at a time. Um, we're now at the scale where we can do that. And by the way, that really helps us because we can have um, a greater chance of achieving these high levels of accountability when we're in a position to fund multiple millions of nets rather than just a few hundred thousand. Um, and the countries we're working in uh, are predominantly in Africa. So at the moment we're working in uh, six countries in Africa. So the Democratic Republic of Congo, Ghana, Malawi, um, Togo, Uganda, Zambia is where we have active programs. There are a number of other countries we may shortly add to that list that have gaps in funding for their net programs. So you know, that's where we try and step in. There's one country in Oceania, just north of Australia, so Papua New Guinea. So those are the projects we're working on that is uh, at the core of what we do. And we have one uh, additional project that we work on in Uganda, and that's all around insecticide resistance. Darwin told us that eventually um, adaptations occur, and it is no surprise that over time, some species of mosquito develop a resistance to the insecticide that's used on the net. Now that insecticide is really important because if we just had a net with no insecticide and there were holes and rips and tears in the net, then the mosquito could pass through the hole without hindrance and get to the person, um, the baby, the mum, sleeping underneath the net. 
if it's covered with insecticide, this is why we're all distributing long-lasting insecticide-treated nets. The long-lasting refers to the fact the insecticide lasts for a long time on the net. Because a mosquito doesn't do an aerobatics maneuver through a hole, it lands on the net and then migrates across the net, walks across the net to the hole. It picks up insecticide on its feet and that causes a knockdown, kills it. And so it's very important um, uh, when we think about the efficacy of your net to ensure that the insecticide is still effective. Now it is in the vast majority of locations um, completely uh, effective. But there are some species of mosquito um, that are developing this resistance. And so one of the things that we have done recently is to fund um, the trial of a, a gold standard scientific trial, a randomized control trial of uh, a very large quantity of nets, 6 million uh, nets in Uganda. And we are looking at and gathering the data as to what the impact is of these new type of nets. They're called PBO nets. Um, uh, piperonyl uh, butoxide is the chemical that we add to the net um, that switches off the, the resistance mechanism in the mosquito effectively. And so we've got two chemicals on the net, perfectly safe for everybody inside. Um, and so we're looking with great interest over the next uh, six to 18 months as to the results of that trial because, or that study, uh, the nets are definitely no less good, by the way, than the, than the standard LLINs we're distributing. But the potential in um, areas that have some degree of um, insecticide resistance could be dramatically higher. But we've got to all get the data for that. So that's what we're doing. So um, these PBO nets that we're distributing could, uh, the data we collect, hopefully will have a um, significant impact in guiding our decisions in the coming years as to whether or not um, there is this new type of net that might uh, uh, be better to distribute in air areas where there is insecticide resistance. So there's a couple of examples of um, some of some of the uh, work we're, we're, we're involved in. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned being a very impact-driven organization. So how do you quantitatively evaluate the efficacy of your programs? Like, what are your metrics for impact evaluation? We look at one primary measure, and that is coverage levels. In other words, once we have gone into an area what is the percentage of sleeping spaces that are covered with a net? Not just immediately after distribution, but over the next three years before the next universal coverage campaign is liable, uh, likely to take place. It's not always three years through lack of funding, but ideally three years later, a new universal coverage campaign uh, takes place because the, the nets typically last um, for about three years. Nets, unfortunately, don't last 30 years. It would be wonderful if they did, but that's not you know, the case in reality. So what we look at is coverage levels. Now, they are a very good proxy for uh, malaria levels. Um, we would love to be able to focus um, uh, primarily on malaria data. How many people die? How many people fall sick from malaria? But without getting into the details um, on our call today, um, a summary would be that malaria data is incredibly noisy for all sorts of reasons. It's not accurate because of challenges within health systems in, in these countries because of the, the lack of fun funding they have in health systems. And therefore, if we were to go after malaria data and just publish that, it would be very difficult to really find out what's going on. Um, it might be, for example, that we have uh, 500 cases of malaria one month 
and we come back the next month and we find there are 300. And that might tell, tell us that, uh, or might lead us to believe that we're making good progress and malaria cases are coming down. But it can be as simple as, in that particular health clinic, they ran out of rapid diagnostic testing kits. And so for the, first, the last two weeks of that next month, they didn't do any testing. So that 300 number is only two weeks worth of data. So issues like this mean that we focus on coverage levels. We also focus on a number of financial metrics in terms of um, the cost, the money we're paying for nets and the cost of programs because we've obviously got to do things financially efficiently. Um, but our primary um, metric for uh, assessing how we're doing is to follow, co follow coverage levels over time through our what we call six monthly post-distribution um, monitoring surveys uh, where we go to typically 5% of the households that receive nets during the um, universal coverage campaign. We select villages and households at random. We visit the households unannounced, and that helps to give us very good data that is statistically significant so we can look at um, the distribution area that we are involved in and, and have a, a very good idea of what is happening with coverage levels, and that data can feed into the national health system, the district health officer, and his or her team to decide how they might want to orient some of their very limited resources to do the most they can to um, continue to contribute to driving malaria down. So um, net coverage levels is, 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 the, is the primary thing we focus on. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned being involved in many different countries across the world. So what are some of the community responses to your work? Well, I would say, first of all, that the communities that we work in, um, we think of communities as the, um, the, the beneficiary groups, if you like, in uh, mostly, as I said, African countries. Um, I, I wish people would were in a position to go out and buy nets, and we didn't. Uh, none of us needed to raise funds and distribute um, nets free to recipients, but we're talking about people who live on a dollar or two dollars or three dollars a day um, and can't afford uh, nets. And, and the practical reality is if we want to cover seven million people in a country with nets, you just can't hope to do it by putting nets in pharmacies um, or, or local stores and hope they'll be bought and will we'll, we'll achieve coverage. It just doesn't happen. So these universal coverage campaigns are very important. So our um, client, if you like, uh, uh, the people we're concerned about, those communities we're concerned about are the ones we're providing nets to. I suppose I would say that the reaction from uh, you know, the vast majority of people that we deal with is that they are welcoming, they are appreciative, they're hardworking um, because community members um, uh, and leaders of communities and health workers are all involved in, in the organization and logistics of distributions in some shape or form. There's obviously a top level organization at a national level, but right down at the local level, um, local people are involved. So if you like, again, it's a, it's a wider team effort involving many people. Um, the response we look for um, and we focus on is, is that they use the net. Um, and indeed, you know, one of our uh, jobs uh, in the minutiae of what we do is, ma is making sure that we can do all we can to um, make sure community members understand the importance of sleeping under nets. Um, so there are malaria education components in what we do. It's not complicated. It describes how you contract malaria, what the signs are, what you do if you think somebody has malaria, etc., and includes the, um, uh, the salient points about why it's important to sleep under a net. And indeed, why it's important that you sleep under a net 
not just to protect you, but to protect other members of your community. Because if you're under a net, rather than your net being folded up on a shelf, where it wouldn't be much good to anybody, um, then if mosquitoes land on your net and are being killed, those malaria-carrying mosquitoes aren't able to fly to your neighbor's house and potentially bite them if they happen to be unprotected. So um, one of the responses we see, I suppose, at the, um, in many communities is they see malaria rates fall, um, it reinforces the benefits of and the importance of using nets, and, and really that's, you know, that's, that's where our work is all targeted. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the challenges that you face as an organization? I'd say that we face, um, I mean, many challenges, and we learn every day. We certainly don't have all the right answers or claim, you know, claim we do. We, we, we hope we get a lot of things right, but I suppose logistical challenges um, are right up there um, and drive the way we go about things and what we do um, and why we focus on data and we focus on detail. Um, so an example I gave earlier, ensuring nets get to the people who need them, you know, that's a significant challenge if you're not really thinking about it and putting a, you know a very good operational plan in place so we we carry out these detailed um, household registration surveys and we need to design the process well and we need to select the people who are involved uh, working with us well we need to train them well um, we need to manage them well and so if you don't do all of that um, to a high standard you're going to invite challenges so um, many aspects of the operations around our logistics are things we have to make sure we're on top of um, we also have um, accountability challenges. Um, it can be quite binary for us um, in the sense that um, it's sort of on or off. Um, you know, we owe it to our donors to ensure that there are um, very sensible accountability measures in place um, so nets don't go missing, don't get stolen, for example, um, so that we can steward the funds that are entrusted to us extremely well. So when we have conversations with um, national malaria control programs and individuals within them. Um, if for whatever reason they don't feel they can agree to what we would consider to be basic elements of data-driven accountability, then that's likely to mean that we're not gonna be in a position to fund nets for that particular country um, you know, with regret, but we have a you know, responsibility um, to, to spend money wisely and to be able to know it's being spent wisely and, and, and the, the impact is being had and that then points us to other countries that we then focus on because unfortunately there is no shortage of countries that help um, need help closing net gaps so um, logistical challenges distributing millions of nets um, us working with other partners is a significant logistical exercise so that's where we focus a lot of our attention and underpinning what we do is accountability so we make sure that we don't have accountability challenges but some of those discussions can be um, we have to be patient because we're asking countries to do things that they may not have done before so we have to patiently explain why um, and what the benefits are so those are the sort of things that keep us busy mm -hmm. and lastly what are their goals for the years to come and what can our listeners do to help well um, I suppose closing more of the gaps in funding for net um, is, is where we're going to focus our efforts so that more people in malarious areas are protected when they sleep at night. Um, we want to continue to drive up accountability and distributions because we think there's a virtuous circle there. If we can do that and ensure that distributions, these logistical operations are ever more accountable and we can demonstrate it with data, 
we reinforce the confidence that donors have in our work and that drives donations. So it's a, very much these two things are, are, are linked, if you like. Um, so one of the things that um, we're doing is we're looking and starting to deploy electronic devices for collecting data at households. So it means you don't then generate um, literally tens of thousands of pieces of paper, the data on, you know, the information on which has to be then typed into a database. Um, but that uh, um, operational rollout has to be managed sensibly and, and carefully. Um, so that accountability is, is, is very important to us and continuing to drive that up. Uh, so lastly, we would want to contribute uh, more widely to, to more areas being malaria-free. Um, that is eminently achievable. Um, and a good example of that is the country of Sri Lanka, where uh, for three years recently they had no native cases of malaria. So after those three years, uh, Sri Lanka was declared and now is malaria-free. So it's not as though we need to keep fighting malaria. We can um, bring it under control and then move from control to eradicating it. So um, we want to continue to do all that we can to uh, contribute to more malarias um, in more areas being malaria-free. How can people help? Um, well, you would be surprised to say that uh, they could help by donating to AMF. Um, I mean, no amount is too small. Um, every net matters. And if we look at some of the numbers, um, the cost of a long-lasting insecticidal net is now about $2. Um, so each net for $2 protects two people. $500 buys enough um, nets to protect an entire village. And there are independent charity evaluators out there who look at um, the impact and the cost effectiveness of malaria programs and particularly our work. And what they say is that on average, um, $3,000 given to AMF equates to one life saved, most likely a child under five, and prevents about a thousand cases of malaria. So, um, you know, whether it's $2 or multiples thereof, um, you know, every, every amount, however um, modest might one somebody might think it is it really does make a difference to people's lives um, I think we'd also invite people to to look at against malaria.com to look at our website um, have a look at what we do um, we very much uh, focus on people getting the information and we're, we're very happy for people to look at our website look at what we do and how we do it um, assess what they think our impact accountability transparency efficiency is and hopefully that will um, uh, allow uh, people to consider donating uh, some nets uh, through us and we can help protect people. Um, I should add that 100% of the money that, that is given to us by the public buys nets. Not a cent goes on anything else because our central costs, which are very low, um, are already covered by a small group of, of donors. So um, last year our central costs were 0.6% of revenue, um, something that can be found on our website. Um, so they're very low, but importantly, they're covered. So it means that, simply put, 100% of additional funds that um, flow to us by nets. Um, we then fund the nets. Other people fund the non-net costs, the shipping, the um, in-country pre-distribution and distribution costs, um, uh, because this is a, um, uh, an area of work where a number of organizations come together. And uh, therefore, we can be very efficient with the money that's entrusted to us. Um, and perhaps lastly, I'd say, um, because we're very big on accountability, as, as hopefully that message will, will be clear, is that uh, some of your listeners might like to go and see what um, other organizations say about us. Um, I, always think it's, I always think it's good for people to hear what other people say about an organization. So you mentioned GiveWell at the, 
in your introduction. Uh, GiveWorld.org is a good website to look at. Um, they provide a view on what we do at AMF. Um, it's based on significant amounts of research and uh, it's very data-driven uh, and it's independent. Um, and perhaps that too can help donors, uh, potential donors decide um, what level of confidence they might have in us and uh, whether they'd like to donate to us. So um, those would be some, some good things that, that people could do next if they wish to. That's really wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to participate in our Impact Series podcast. Your organization has done a lot of really great work with a very data-driven focus on impact evaluation. Well, and we're also really excited to continue following AMF and the many exciting developments to come. Great. Thanks very much, Vandana.